And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we are back. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Conaway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. And I have to tell you, super, super excited. This episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io. If you are looking to build a software team, build a technical product, they're going to help you do it quickly and affordably. So today, I am, I don't think I can express to you how excited I am for this guest. We've been connecting before we hit the record button, uh, but this gentleman and I, we have known each other for quite some time. And when I first met him, he was a, he was a, a branding expert, a, a videographer, sound, just an amazing expert in media. And then he has since pivoted a couple of times. You know, he done some work around COVID and vaccinations. And, and now he's, he's working on a really, really important topic. And I have to admit, one that I don't know a ton about, so I'm looking forward to learning with him. But today we have with us Jay Austin. And Jay is founder of JWA, parent company also to Relentless and Decarcerator Media. Um, he is a fantastic human being, and he focuses his work around decarceration, decarceration efforts. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Hey, Lauren. Humble to be here. <laughs> well, so let's let's dive right into it because I know we, we have a lot to talk about. Um, and, and you're gonna, I, I just can't wait for this. But my, my first question to you is kind of the general question. So, so tell us, who are you and what do you do? I'm Jay. Some people call me J-Dub, especially when I'm creating content. That's the artistic name. You know, you got to have that. And uh, I would say that one way to think about what I do is, like you said in the intro, which is everything I do points to decarceration. And decarceration is the opposite of a term that a lot of us have hopefully heard, unfortunately heard at this point, which is mass incarceration. And so all of our efforts, whether it's through media or in the streets, actual activism is pointed towards lowering the number of people who are locked behind bars in the U.S. That, so, so that is important work. And as you said, like I've heard the term mass incarceration used, but, but talk to us, why is your work important? What, what impact are you having within the community? Well, I think the most basic way to look at this is we're making sure that in the land of the free, people actually are that. And it might be surprising to some people who are newer to the topic of mass incarceration and decarceration to learn that the U.S. is the top incarcerator in the world. In fact, a lot of our states, more than half of our states, I think, um, incarcerate more people than countries do. So we incarcerate a lot of people. There are a lot of people locked up. There are a lot of people also on some sort of supervision, like sure. parole or probation. 
but it's important to remember that when it's locked up, their family gets locked up too. It's yeah. not literal, but from a mental and emotional standpoint, and in many times an economic standpoint, the people who are uh, collateral damage, you know, that that's one way to think about mass incarceration. So I think decarceration work is important from that aspect, working with the people who are most directly impacted. But Lauren, I think something I wanna always make clear when I get to talk about decarceration and spread ideas about decarceration yeah, is that most of the things that would keep somebody from being locked up in the first place are also things that would prevent people from being victimized in the first right. place. So I, I don't take an anti-victim approach to my work. Yeah. Those people's experiences matter as much as the people who I get to work directly with who are currently locked up, formally locked up, or about to be locked up. And in many cases, they're the same people. Yeah. There's so many people who do get locked up who are victimized, who then perpetuate that victimization yeah. on people. So it's it's not anti-victimization. So I think that's the second aspect to why our work seems to have some weight of importance is that we're also trying to just prevent victimization in the first place. Yeah. Well, and I love and I I love that you point that out because I, I've heard and I, you know, psych 101, I certainly can't delve too deeply into this, but I do know that violence and crime tends to be cyclical. Like if you have crime perpetrated onto you, uh, you know, when you're young or even in, into your adulthood, you are more likely to engage in uh, unhealthy, unsafe, and sometimes criminal behaviors. Um, and so, so I, I love that you point that out. And I love that you, you view your work with that lens. Not only am I looking to help and protect the decars or the incarcerated, but I am also looking to protect those potential future victims. Um, yes, so, yes. so hugely important that you pointed that out and, and thank you for that. Um, so, so I want to ask you a question because this is something that has, I've heard this and I don't know much about it, but you said something that really struck me. Uh, you, you said that, you know, the number one, the U.S. is the number one uh, country in the world as far is it, what is it, the incarcerated per capita? Is that the statistic, the official statistic? Yeah. So we're like all gold medals, Lauren. Like if it's, yeah. if we're talking about, if we're talking about like in, incarcerated people per capita, the way that yeah. that tends to be measured is per 10,000 people. Right. Um, uh, yeah, we lead the world in that. We lead the world in the number, the total number of people who are locked up and behind bars. Uh, so in terms of volume, we lead in sure. that as well. So yes, the top incarcerator in the world. Well, so, so one of the things that I have heard, and I'm going to ask if you can kind of shed some light on this a little bit, but sure. one of the things that I've heard is that it's profitable to incarcerate people. There is a fiduciary financial reward for having people in prison. And I, and I don't know enough to like parse that out, but I can see that, you know, you reward the behavior that you want to see. Right. And so sure. the fact that we are number one does not surprise me, but can you talk about that profit prison pipeline that I've heard about? Yes, yes. Um, this is by default one of the most complex subjects within uh, the prison system and the criminal justice system writ large. Just, like, jump right into it, right? <laughs> yeah, so 
Um, and so just for listeners out there, like this is such a nuanced topic, you know, crime, justice system, et cetera, is a nuanced topic. So I'm forced to speak in generalities uh, a lot of times, and this is no uh, exception to that. So I don't think it's profitable for anybody to incarcerate anybody at this point. Um, there's a lot of talk, especially among people who are newer to the system, and especially those who've been turned on to criminal justice reform topics because of everything that happened in 2020. Yeah. Uh, that topic is uh, about private prison industry. Uh, so, so let me just kind of put this into context for folks. So the private prison industry, when you're first introduced to the topic, it sounds like there are prisons that are privately owned. So like Bob down the street made some money off of his last, I don't know, hedge fund deal or, or startup sale, right? And all of a sudden invest that into building his own privately owned prison where he gets to walk around in a bathrobe and smoke a bubble pipe, right? Right. So while there are private prisons, it's not operating like that. Every private prison in the U.S., uh, is owned by a public company, you know, one of three public companies. So these are companies that you and I might even be invested in in our Roth IRA. I know I'm not, um, but uh, some people are just by default, uh, yeah. their portfolio portfolio management. But um, the, the private prison industry really makes its money off of things like selling food in the commissary or selling time on prison phones or iPads or access to email. They make right. money on surveillance after somebody's incarcerated. So ankle monitors, air switches. So like uh, if you get uh, busted for a DUI, maybe it's part of your parole uh, once you're released to have something in your car that you blow into before it can even start. All of that is owned by the private prison industry. Yeah. Um, a lot of body cams are produced by private prison industries. And this one is, uh, it surprised me when I first learned about it, but there are a lot of private contracts that own and lease the land and the buildings back to local government. And I'm not just talking about like prisons and detention centers. I'm talking about like just a plain old building, right? Yeah. So, so they're collecting rent from a local government, state government, and it could be like social security. It could be, you know, your, your office of, uh, your like HUD office in, in the state. So when it comes to the actual number of prisons that are privately owned, like exclusively privately owned, the current estimate right now is that less than 10% of all the people who are in class are in a privately owned facility. Okay. So, um, so yes, and it's very debatable to Lauren, whether they save the government any money. And when I say government, I also mean like the taxpayers. Um, that's one of the biggest pitches from the private prison industry when they're actually housing people. They say, we will save you money uh, per bed, which is how they do most of their math. We right. will save you money per bed, save your taxpayers money. But 
there's plenty of conflicting information out there that suggests that that might not actually be true. And it's just kind of filling the coffers of the people who are invested in the private prison uh, company. Okay. So, so that's a lot to unpack. Um, and and <laughs> yeah. thank you for sharing that. And I, I think we're going to delve deeply into some of these topics, but I, I do want to walk it back just a little bit. I went, I went straight to profit because that that's a personal question that I've always wanted to have answered, but, um, and you did a beautiful job of that, by the way, Thank but, you. um, talk to us. There is, is this phrase that you use a lot and that I have heard used a lot, but I don't know exactly what it means. So for, first question is kind of a, a little bit of a softball, I imagine, but we talk about, um, decarceration. Can you define that for us? What does that mean to you? Yes. Yeah, so decarceration is the act of having fewer people locked behind bars. Okay. Yes. So if we start there, then I think it's smart that we kind of transition to, okay, well that's decarceration, but what is mass incarceration? Yeah. Okay. Mass incarceration uh, again, very complicated subject. Uh, I like to kind of break it down into three different ways to think about what mass incarceration is. Yeah. So in one sense, mass incarceration refers strictly to the number of people who are locked behind bars in the United States. Yeah. Mass, mass incarceration is a uniquely American issue. And so, you know, I have friends in the UK and in Europe, uh, other parts of Europe, where when I say mass incarceration, they automatically assume I'm talking about the US, although I could be talking about the Philippines, I could be talking sure. about South Africa, but, but it is almost exclusively a United States term. So how many people do we have locked up uh, at any given moment? So Lauren, if you and I could multiply ourselves enough times to walk into every single detention facility in the United States and our territories. And if you and I had the ability to count everybody that was in there in one moment, we yeah. would most likely count two to 2.3 million people. Okay. okay. Now, that's, huge. Um, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Like there are a lot of uh, startups that wish they had a 2.2 million person user base. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> okay. So it doesn't stop there. Um, if we talk about the number of people who are admitted into a jail or prison or detention center throughout a 12 month period, that number rises to about 11 million people. Okay. Yeah. Um, there, there are 11 million admissions. So there, there's always this like subset of folks who are going to be returning to prison, being sent back to prison a lot, a lot, a lot. And so that's included in that number. But we're sitting at somewhere like 11 million admissions, um, five to six million unique people every year. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's getting locked up. Now, if we expand it one step further, which is to include the people who are under some sort of supervision, so probation, which happens before you're sent to prison, or parole, uh, which happens once you're released, now that number of people who are being watched or confined rises to something like 13 to 15 million people at yeah. any. Okay, so so that's one way to think about mass incarceration. Um, but big numbers like that are really difficult to grasp. And if you're someone who's looking to make a dent 
in mass incarceration, or as I, I really enjoy saying, which is interrupt mass incarceration, whether it's through personal advocacy or through your business. Um, imagining, uh, it, it's hard to imagine how you would interrupt something that's that big, right? So, right. so, so a second way to think about it, mass incarceration, is to think about the systems that work together, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to produce that many people who are incarcerated or under some sort of supervision. So let me give you an example. How do, uh, how does educational zoning, you know, like school zoning, impact uh, the way that certain neighborhoods are policed which impact the way that the prosecutor views the people who are arrested by police, which then leads to somebody going to prison. Right. Um, that's a very uh, philosophical and systemic way to think about this, but here's something that's probably more tangible for, for us here in this conversation and our listeners. If our company has an HR policy that immediately strikes people with criminal records from the applicant pool, how does that internal system for your company, no matter how large, how does that internal system impact the way that parole system views people who couldn't find a job in time and then got sent back to prison? Right. Um, so, so yeah, so that's the second way to think about it is the, the amorphous kind of like invisible systems that work together to produce a lot of people behind bars. Now, the way, and this is, this is the way that I tend to approach uh, most of the work and most of my explanations about this by default. The third way is to think about mass incarceration as being the combination of dozens, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of tiny decisions, tiny actions that are made on a moment by moment basis that perpetuate and build the systems that put those people in prison. Right. So some of our listeners might, might be sitting there thinking, well, okay, you went from big numbers and then you said, well, we don't handle big numbers well. And you tried to talk about something abstract like systems. And now you're talking about even more numbers than what you started with. And yeah, I feel that. But here's, here's why I think that thinking about mass incarceration in that third way is super important and gives us some agency within this issue. So think about how you are influenced to do certain things. I think right now in 2021, especially after coming out of a year like 2020, uh, somebody's immediate response will be like media, like the media influences the media. Okay. So maybe it does, but that includes films. It includes great books. It includes conversations that you had with your coworker. It includes your environment. These are things that dictate decisions. And so I'm a big proponent of working for very local change on whatever issue you're trying to address. And let's say that you're trying to address police reform. Yeah, It's going to be much easier for you to think about if you live in Kansas City, like where, where you're at or, or somewhere near, think about like, what is the reform at KCPD that I can influence? How can I shape the environment around these people to help them make different decisions that are more in line with my worldview? Um, and so I think that third way of 
defining mass incarceration, which is the, the many, many actions that are taken that lead to the systems that lead to the number. Even though it sounds like the number is infinite almost, we actually have more control over those things because you and I make decisions. So we can influence other people who make decisions and they don't have to be people in places of power either to make those decisions. Yeah. Um, so yes, so decarceration in that light to make it even more tangible to people is decarceration is changing our actions and influencing other small actions that are being taken in and outside the system that leads to fewer people behind bars. Okay. So, so I'm going to ask you, well, really quickly, I do want to just hop in here and let you know, our listeners at home, that today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Fullscale.io. Uh, they are an amazing crack team of developers and graphic designers and, and just an, an awesome team of people who can help you build your technical product. Um, they, they can help you do it quickly and affordably, most importantly. Uh, also, just you know, want to give them a shout out because they allow us a platform to have important conversations like Jay and I are having right now. So huge thanks to Full Scale. And if you are looking to, you know, build your startup, build a software product, a technical product, definitely reach out to them at fullscale.io. So I, I wanted to hop in there really quickly, but getting back into it, I'm going to ask you about another term that I have heard thrown about and, and that I don't fully understand. Um, cause I'm sure that much of like much of all of this conversation, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of context that you have to have in order to fully understand it. So, um, criminal justice reform, talk to me about that. Like, I, I know that you've touched on themes and you've kind of mentioned some pieces of it here and there, but in a nutshell, when we use that particular terminology, what does that mean? That term is one of the most open to perspective terms that exist yeah. in this entire industry. Because one example of criminal justice reform happened in the early 90s under the Clinton administration. And yeah. it made punishments for really any sort of offense much more strict and the leash a lot shorter. And it, it led to even more mass incarceration. So is that when justice. the strikes rule was implemented? It was, yeah. Okay, okay. Definitely. So strikes for those listening at home means that if you have three, what is it? Is it felony offenses on your record? Your third one, you're going away for a long time, basically. Going away for a long time. It, they introduced like mandatory minimum sentencing that was yeah. really severe. Um, like, for example, a lot of the, uh, or like some of the punishments for drug possession and drug use, yeah. um, as, as one example, because I'm sure we have some marijuana startups here. Yeah, which, we definitely that, talk about cannabis business for sure. Okay, that's <laughs> an interesting topic um, that that maybe we can dive into if we have a moment. Yeah. Um, but you know, there were there were some reforms that were made that that made some of these sentences for things like possession longer for those people than yeah. some people in other countries who committed our equivalency of second degree murder. Right. So you could have someone go away for murder for, or for a second degree murder or manslaughter for like five years, but then they're on their third marijuana possession offense and they're also going away for, they're going away for 20, right? Sure, there, there's so many, there's a ton of horror stories. 
Well, um, and I think I think it's really important, you know, and kind of in keeping with some of the conversations that we talk about on the show. But um, I, I know that in the United States, that people from commu marginalized communities, you know, folks who are of color and, and, and living in pretty distressed socioeconomic areas, they are often unfairly targeted by some of these laws, right? So so just a lot of this has to do with some of those systemic issues that attack our society at all levels here in the States. We're talking about racism. We're talking about, uh, you know, colorism. And, and um, we're talking about this, this war on poverty um, that we experience here in the States. And so I think it's really important to, to just to note that. <laughs> Yes, yes. And a lot of these places that are experiencing this level of what some people call over policing or overly aggressive policing, they are environments that were designed to be that way. And there's an economic underpinning, an economic war that went on against these neighborhoods. You know, you're in Kansas City. I'm from Kansas City. Uh, I'm from the part of the city that was redlined. And yeah. And so that's become a more colloquial term, more well-known term uh, among people who have experienced the benefits of redlining, right? Uh, but, but a lot of these places don't have the economic structure and the educational structure to support a more vibrant life. And it's not as if we never asked for those things, right? Like we didn't right. grow up in neighborhoods where we were thankful that we didn't have sidewalks and we were just thankful that we didn't have a good education. That, that that doesn't exist. Um, well, usually when we would ask for those sorts of things, we would get head nods and pats on the back, and then we would just get a fully funded police department uh, to police the crimes that were happening in those neighborhoods. And the funds never really, I don't know, trickled down, if we want to use some terminology of the time. Right. And I think this is an interesting transition, too, into the... Uh, can of business topic. If you'd like to go there, what do you think? Uh, so, so I would love to. You know, we have Heather okay. Steffi. She is. Uh, she has guest hosted some some episodes related to the can of business. We've. I've. I've actually done an interview with her. Like we talk about it on a regular basis. So I think it, it's definitely in line with what we should be talking about conversationally because there are a lot of sweeping changes that are happening within a new industry here in the states. So I think it's really important that we talk about that. Okay, great. I, I only have a couple things to say about it. Um, this is not an industry that I'm mad about. Okay. Uh, sure. Where this is an industry where I see a ton of opportunity for actual justice reform in a more positive way, like a type of reform that benefits not just conservative folks and libertarian folks, but also social democratic folks. I mean, this is an area where we can really make some progress together despite our differences. Now, with that said, there's some shit that happens that I get really frustrated about. Um, if you are all excited about being able to sell medical marijuana, right. and if one of your arguments is that it's a, you know, all in like harmless drug, uh, and if one of your reasons for advocating for like actual legal reforms around this has to do with veterans health i just want to make this super clear if you're not also advocating for the ability to hire people with felony records especially people 
who caught their felony record off of any drug charge. But if you want to play it safe off of a marijuana drug charge, whether it was distribution or if it was possession and use, if you are advocating for the sale of marijuana, but you're not advocating for the ability to hire people who've had their lives entirely ruined by this quote unquote harmless drug, then I want you to just think about what it would look like to step into that advocacy role. It's only one step further than you're already going. And in my opinion, it's one of the most ethical things to do. But beyond that, you're going to get people who are ready to work. You're yeah. going to get people who are ready to work. When people are caught up on possession charges, especially if they went down during the 90s and the early 2000s, which many of my colleagues uh, and friends have, they're old. They've grown out of a lot of behaviors that were criminalized in the past. Sure. And they, they're done. They're done with being incarcerated. That's not to say that incarceration worked. What I'm saying is that when they get out, they're ready to stay out. And right. so please, if you're in the in the uh, cannabis business, thinking about ways that you can advocate on on behalf of people with criminal records and specifically felony records, advocating for them to enter into the workforce, uh, that would be a really smart move. Absolutely. Well, and, and I love that you call that out because you, you're thinking clearly you're thinking about the, the issue in a very holistic kind of way. But that does that does transition us to to my next question because you know we we have an audience here of startup founders and entrepreneurs and people who are just you know they're they're startup hustling to make a business work and so you know you you're, you're talking to you were kind of talking to the the cannabis business industry there like you need to advocate on both sides of the issue both for, both for the decriminalization of the sale but then also the decarceration of individuals who have engaged in the very behaviors that we want to see moving forward in our country as we seek to legalize marijuana. Um, so so I, I, I love that. Um, but I do want to ask you, how can startup founders and how can entrepreneurs and how can, how can this community of people who are problem solvers and passionate change makers, how can we help? What can we do? So if you are in a hiring position, I would encourage you to think about, like if your industry allows it, right, uh, up to this point, think about taking a look at your hiring requirements. This is beyond ban the box. So to catch people up, like ban the box was just this movement to say like, don't force an applicant to identify whether they've been convicted of a felony in right. the past on the first page like in the first stage of the process. And it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but that's basically what it is. So this is beyond it. This is almost getting to a point where you say, hey, we don't look at criminal records. And I know that that sounds extreme. I know that sounds extreme, but, but stay with me here. So there are more good people locked up than bad. Sure. There are more good people locked up than bad. And the reason that can happen is because most of the people who are incarcerated tend to be admitted into jails first. Okay. And they stay there for less than a year. Yeah. Okay. And 70, 75% of the people who are in a jail haven't even been convicted of a crime yet. And that's still 
a lot of sometimes will land on a record. Like I've got a record, right? And yeah. so if you've gone through this entire conversation thinking, oh, that's an interesting person who I'd like to sit down. I'm telling you, there are so many people like me who've gotten twisted up by the system due in large part to behaviors that they made that was encouraged by the environment they were in. Right. And so as a startup founder, take a look at your hiring policies and at the very least, make sure that we're giving people a fair shot. Um, and one idea that you can hold that might help you uh, think through this and advocate for this internally, or if you're the decision maker, just well internally, like in your mind, is there's still a vast number of people who've been arrested, locked up, charged, whatever, who didn't do it. Or if they did, that behavior has been legalized or at least decriminalized since they did it. And yeah. so holding that as a truth, I mean, and we're talking about like a, a nice uh, portion of people who have experienced the system. Uh, so keep that in mind, but from a financial perspective. So um, there are tax credit opportunities for organizations that hire people uh, convicted of certain offenses within a certain period of time of their release. And uh, as long as you meet some of these requirements, you can actually write up to uh, a few thousand dollars per person, often taxes, uh, when you hire those people. This is uh, a talent pool that is untapped, sure. untapped. And it's a talent pool that is probably more ready to get back to work than that college grad, right? Who's yeah. just looking for their transition piece. Like, what do I do for the next two years to build my resume? Right. Yeah. So you're, you're already like by, by virtue of going and looking at people who've been locked up for five, seven, eight years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever, who are getting out and they need to pay off their parole fees and they need to find housing and they're just done with the life and they're ready to get a job and stick with it for 15 to 20 years. This is a great pool of people from a talent perspective and from a yeah. show upness perspective, but also if this is what matters to you, you get the tax write-off. Right. So, so, so there's an, some ways there's to help. economic incentive to doing this. I do want to, so, so clearly this is an idea that is gaining traction. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I don't really remember, I think that this, this particular topic, criminal justice reform, decarceration, I think that this is a relatively recent add to the, the national conversation that we have. I, I don't remember talking about this when I was a lot younger, but I will say, so the Kansas City Business Journal, they just recently did a cover story on Determination Incorporated, which I know you know Kyle, who's one of the founders of this organization, yes, but they they also focus on decarceration and uh, they, they, they look at... Um, minimizing recidivism, which is, you know, somebody gets released from prison, but then they go out and they commit another crime and they have to go back to prison. prison. And so, so they're trying to uh, minimize that. And so, so I want to read a quote really quickly. Um, this is from Jamon Buford, excuse me if I didn't pronounce that correctly, but founder of Good Brothers Construction and Remodeling and a formerly incarcerated person. And he says, 
I really believe that 85% of the men and women coming out of prison have good intentions. But when you get out here, reality hits and it hits fast. So you get out of prison, you have nowhere to go. You're probably on parole. You are filling out job applications because in most cases you have to have a job that you have to report to your parole officer, right? Um, and then you're, you're, you have such a hard time finding a job that can pay for rent and can pay for all of those things. What do you turn to? What do you do? And so you see remarkably high recidivism rates here in the U.S. for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. It's really, really difficult for people who come out of prison to find a job, right? But I, I think, you know, to Jaman's point, most people who are coming out of prison, they just they want to work and they want to reenter society and they want to they're ready to become good, productive members of of society. And we make it so hard for them. Right. I mean, would you agree? <laughs> yes. Yes. So um, I do want to clarify one thing uh, about recidivism. So the way that I think about recidivism is like this. It is being sent back to prison. Yeah. Sent back to prison. Um, some people will say going back to prison. There, there is a, I mean, there are some people who are like, yeah, I would rather be in jail because they feed me and I get medical treatment, right? Which speaks to a whole other systemic issue. That's not, oh, sure. we, we don't have the, the time. <laughs> yeah, to we, go we can into talk that. about all of this stuff for hours. <laughs> yeah, but very few people willingly pack their bags and go back to prison. So, Recidivism, uh, to me, I think really strong and accurate language is being sent back to prison. Um, and this is where people in the startup community can really make a difference and the, the small business community can really make a difference as well. Uh, what Jamon talked about was how people may not hire you because of your felony. And so a lot of times you'll find people who have to start their own business out of necessity. Right. He mentioned people being on parole. And so parole, again, is when you're released from incarceration, they'll give you a set of requirements that you have to meet uh, within a certain time period uh, or else there are consequences. And right. um, little known fact, but very important fact. Okay, so our recidivism rate, so the rate of people being sent back to prison is nationwide somewhere between 75 and 80%. Wow. Okay. That's a that's a really bad failure rate. I mean, like, if if you're a if you're an early stage startup and you're like, yeah, we're failing and we're failing fast, then you're looking for the seventy five to eighty percent failure rate to, because that twenty percent is going to be worth it. You're going to bang. It's Pareto's principle. But when we're talking about the cost of human lives and economic development and all these things, then we're not doing a great job. We've built a really bad system. But yeah. of the eight of the let's just go with eighty percent of people who get sent back to prison and recidivate. Of that eighty percent of folks, seventy to seventy-five percent of those people who do get sent back to prison get sent back because of what's called a technical violation to their parole. Okay. Not because they committed a new offense. So they were found in possession of something that they shouldn't have or like like something like that? Or what, what does that mean? Yeah, me so sometimes it could be, so that would be committing a new offense. So okay. a technical violation to your parole is not legally an offense. Okay, so it's not the same as like, like it's nothing that you would have gotten arrested for if you yeah. didn't have a record, right? 
Um, it's just a violation of the requirements. Now, some of those requirements, uh, showing up late for a meeting with your parole officer. Okay. Uh, forgetting to tell your PO that you would be crossing state lines. And, you know, uh, in Kansas City, for example, That's it's a super city. easy to do. <laughs> it's really easy to do. Um, right on the border. <laughs> exactly. It's uh, in some cases, it's not being able to find a job within a certain amount of time. And this yeah. is what I want to spend just just a second on um, as we wrap up. Yeah. So, so I have a friend who was incarcerated as a person who was addicted to two substances. And uh, during his incarceration, he did not get one single write-up, like not a single demerit while he was in prison. And this is pretty rare, right? Because it's just, this is a place where a lot of people are just, you got to survive. And so you're going to get written up for something. He spent his last prison stint, didn't get written up for anything. He knew he was never going back to prison. He was clean. He was doing his thing. He was mentoring other guys. He got released. He paroled out to what's called an Oxford house. So a transitional home. Okay. And uh, as part of his conditions for parole, he had to stay off drugs. So he had to pass all of his UAs. He had to be clean and he had to find a job. And then he had like curfew requirements to live in the house. Yeah. Okay. So they gave him uh, 14 days to find a job. And he's got a pretty extensive criminal record and a felony record as well. Okay. Yeah. 14 days. Now, when they released him, he didn't have his driver's license. So he tried to go to the DMV, didn't have a ride, but he found his way there because he's a resilient dude. Yeah. Gets up to the counter. They say, well, we need some proof of your birth date. Do you have any other government issued IDs except for your prison identification card? Right. And he said, well, no, I don't have my birth certificate. So he had to track down his birth certificate, which was in Lawrence, Kansas. Sure. And how was he going to get there? So he couldn't get his birth certificate right away, but he also needed his social security. So he goes to social security and they say, well, do you have a driver's license? And he has to figure, he has to figure all of this out on his own. It should be the job of parole or a nonprofit, but we don't have those resources. He didn't have those resources when he came out. And he also didn't have the computer technical aspect of things. And so he's stuck in this cycle and he got his first write-up during that entire sentence while he was out because he couldn't find a job in 14 days because he couldn't have his, couldn't find his license first certificate. This is a place where people can step in, in a real way. And yeah just slam the door on recidivism, whether it's for a large group of people or an individual person like my friend who got out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a, that is a heartbreaker of a story. And I, it, it's one of many, I'm sure. Um, you know, clearly we have a lot of work to do as a country to, and it all comes down one of the, and I, I would love to like dive down this rabbit hole with you. And I, I could talk to you about this for hours because I find this fascinating, but one of the things, the conversations that we need to have, and it's a very fundamental conversation is, is our criminal justice system intended to be punitive 
or rehabilitative. And, and so do we want to punish people for the crimes they have committed or do we want, is our goal to help them become better, stronger, more actuated people? And, and so I think that, you know, the conversation that we're having is all, is about the latter. How do we help people become the best, truest part of themselves? And I honestly feel that that's what entrepreneurship is all about. So, so Jay, I just, we can't really delve too, too much further into that, but I, I do, I'm going to ask you the human question. Here it comes. Uh, and it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, what are you reading right now? I actually want to know, like you're, you're such a smart guy and I'm sure that you read a lot of stuff, uh, but I, I want to know, what are you reading right now? Thank you. So um, I've got a couple books open right now, uh, which tends to be my reading pattern. Um, yeah. And so right now, one of the books I'm reading is called The Marathon Don't Stop, which is a biography of the late, great Nipsey Hussle, who nice. died on my, March 31st in 2018. Um, yeah. He's one of my inspirations, one of the guys who when he died, I definitely cried. Uh, so I'm reading that. Yeah, that was a that was a tough one for our community, for sure. Um, and one of the greatest inspirations for what we're doing, because he was a felon who became an entrepreneur out of necessity. And yeah. he became one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time, and he was cut short. So that's one that I'm reading. But then uh, another one that I'm reading uh, has to do with food and fungi. Uh, so I, I really enjoy those topics. So we just opened um, Fantastic Fungi by Paul Stamets okay. and a whole bunch of other really dope mycologists. Uh, right. And one one I just finished was called The End of Plenty, which is about whether or not we can feed a world with more than 9 billion people. Yeah. Well, Jay, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to, to educate us and titillate us and have uh, a really, really important topic discussed um I've, I've truly i always enjoy my time with you you know that thank you thank um but I, I do also want to tell to you listeners at home uh today's episode of startup hustle was sponsored by full scale they can help you build a software team quickly and affordably also want to point out if you are looking for startup hustle on the interwebs find us on instagram at startup hustle podcast or check out our youtube channel um i don't know if you listen to the i'm sure that you listen to the other hosts but definitely keep an eye out for startup hustle podcast episodes with host andrew morgans they uh if you're in the e-commerce space he is an expert and his company marknology is an amazon brand accelerator company so you don't want to miss his episodes definitely check them out listeners i cannot tell you how grateful we are that you choose to spend this time with us it has been absolutely wonderful uh talking to jay and being here with you and we will catch you on the flip side. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.